Well, church, you've probably already noticed that the temperature is struggling to stay down in here this morning. One of our units we just found out is actually is not properly working, which is it's typical of that particular one. We blow a capacitor every year during this time of year, and so we'll have someone come in and fix it tomorrow. But we will try to endure for the remainder of our time this morning. We have one little engine that could. Hopefully over here will keep us at least somewhat comfortable, and we'll see how this goes this morning, okay? Um, let's stand now. Let's hear the reading of God's Word from Psalm 103. I'm going to read all 22 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor pay us according to our iniquities. Far as, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone and it, in its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember, his, remember to do his commandments. The Lord, who, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, his mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. Perhaps you've asked the question at some point in your life, your own experience, if you've been a part of the church um, at any point through you know, most of your life, I would assume many of us in here have this testimony, you've been a part or occasion to churches that just bicker over worship. They bicker over worship styles. They bicker over, um, you know, at least in the last several decades, you know, modern versus, you know, versus traditional and all the things that go along with that. And, um, and, we, and you might ask yourself, and maybe you and I do, I mean, maybe you do as you come in here, why do people have conflict over things that seem, in a lot of ways, like worship styles, seem somewhat trivial at, time, trivial at times. And my guess, at some point in your, your own history, you've encountered these to the point that when you, maybe when you joined in or jumped in here at Grace Church, you realize that that's really, the questions of worship are far more important to us um, than the question of style or, or any of those kinds of things. But what we try to take seriously here at, at Grace is to continue to dive more deeply into the question of 
you know, how we are to worship, but more than that, why we are to worship the way we do and, and how we understand the Bible teach, teach, Bible's teaching on worship and what does it call us to do in response to that and how we shape and form what we do here in our corporate worship and, and maybe even as we encourage you to worship privately. Now, my aim this morning is not to unpack all the contours of why we do what we do here at Grace Church. Hopefully, you've picked up some of that, those answers along the way. As you, It's more caught than taught, right? You're here, and you kind of understand why we do and why there are certain elements that we do here at our church. But looking at Psalm 103, it's, it's important that we look at this text and see that if you've been a part of, why we, we're, been a part of Grace for any certain amount of time, you understand, or at least we'll be able to get a glimpse from a high level, why we do what we do here and why we've employed certain elements in our corporate worship. Um, that a close observation of this psalm shows that there's a, a familiar cadence to the Psalm 103. Psalm 103's cadence is very similar to the cadence that we've employed here. And frankly, not just us. It's really been the, the tradition, if you look at most Protestant traditions, especially the Reformed tradition, of just this call to worship in verses 1 and 2, and then the reasons why we worship law, gospel, confession, gospels, you know, all the wonderful things. We preach the gospel. We preach the word of God. We take the Lord's Supper, being a part of God's family. And then at the very end, we do another call to worship, but it's an invitation to worship out there. That's what our benediction is. And so you kind of see that same kind of structure, very, very high level on Psalm 103. And I think what it does is it invites you and I to consider once again, and we should regularly consider the reality of why do we worship and how and, and, and how we answer that question will then instruct us on how we worship and all, all the things that go along with that. What I think David will show us today is an exuberant worship on his part that it's rooted in his understanding of who God is and how he's revealed himself to us but as he's worshiping he's not just speaking to himself as he does in these first two verses we'll see but he then ends with all the earth worship everyone should worship and so really to be honest with you it's the the, the main idea that we're going to unfold or unpack from this text this morning is really what the Westminster divines said in their first catechism question. What is the chief end of man? If you know the answer, say it with me. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so it's really that second, that answer that then gives us a nice little goal this morning and then begin to look at Psalm 103 through that lens and then ask ourselves, answer four, three or four questions from this text, from this psalm that will help us understand worship, enjoy, enjoy worship together. And so here it is. David invites all who will hear to know this, that their chief end in life, all means all, chief end in life is to worship God and to enjoy Him forever. So my goal this morning is to take a more devotional look at Psalm 103, and in doing so, answer some intuitive questions that kind of arise out of the text, where the, we are invited to sing with exuberance and bless our souls to, in, in the fact of who we desire, to desire to worship God rightly and passionately. And so there's really four questions, and your guide, if you get the little handout, actually there's an additional question I've change the structure a little bit. It's just what happens when you print too early in the week, right? Sometimes the Lord leads in a different direction, but we have four questions that we're going to do here. One, how should a person worship God? 
Why should a person worship God? What is God like that we should praise God? That's the additional question. And then last will be, who should worship God? So let's look at that first question. And let's look at, look at verses 1 and 2 to help answer the question. How should a person worship God? Verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. We see two things right, right away about, you know, how we're to worship God, aren't we? We see the first is we worship God with all that's in us. Like there's nothing less that God wants from us than to have our entire being consumed with the worship of God. That there's all that all spheres of our life are, are called to be submitted to the glory of God. And in so doing, though, we are worshiping God when we do that. And so bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Like it's a call for you and I to not worship God superficially. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, mind, and with all your strength. Remember Jesus answered that great question of what is the chief command of Scripture? Well, you can't divorce the vertical, like what we say and believe and trust about God, without it affecting the horizontal, right? So Jesus takes the, the, this question that we see in Matthew, and he says, look, if you're going to worship the Lord your God, it's got to affect you on a, a complete holistic basis with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all of your strength. It's an all-encompassing invitation. It's an all-encompassing call to us of how we're to worship him. Worship is not simply experiential, though it's never less than that. I reject the idea that somehow or another Christian worship is not to be experiential on some level. Otherwise, how would you know your heart's changed? No, it is experiential. There is experience to it, but rather it's more than that. It's, a, it's, it's all of our hearts being consumed with the glory of God to the deepest point of our affections. This is what Jonathan Edwards devoted most of his writing to. That if we're going to understand worship and glory of God, it's got to affect us on the deepest of levels. So when we look at that famous response of Jesus, and, and really going back to the Old Testament in that regard, and to Exodus, all your soul is your entire self, my entire self. Who God says you are. And surrendering all that you think you are to God. All your mind, as Romans 12 comes to mind for me, verse 1 and 2, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? It, it's, it's, does our thinking conform to the revealed word of God? That's worship. Is the preaching in this fellowship clear so that we get a clear understanding of what it is, who God is and what God calls his people to do? And does it challenge us to, in our understanding of our own lives and are we willing to Surrender to it, all of your strength, the entirety of our energy, right? The entirety of our life's energy and every sphere of our life should be devoted to the glories of God and do what most glorifies God. That's the first, way the, the, the first answer to the question of how we're to worship him is with all of ourselves. But there's something else that I want to make sure we see in verse 2, right? Forget not his benefits, the part of why we worship is so that we will never forget all that God has done and what God is doing. 
And of all things that God's people should make central in our worship is to remember all that God has done in his grace to, on our behalf for us. That's why he says, and forget not all his benefits, and of course, verses 3 through basically 19, which we'll unpack in the next two questions, is the answer to those benefits, what those benefits are, and we'll look at those just in a moment. So gospel reflection should always be at the heart of Christian worship and amusing about what God has done in our hearts through, the, through what it means to be, it should be at the very heart of being Christian. We should always stand before God with absolute wonder as to why we would gain the benefits of God. If, worship, if Christian worship doesn't call us to that, it doesn't inspire that in us to, to stand before God and go, why, God? Why would you allow me to benefit from such glory, from, some, from such grace, from such mercy? Then you're, you're probably not experiencing true, true Christian worship. And so that's our first question. How are we to worship God? With everything you got. So that you would remember all your days the benefits of God. But here's the second question. Why should we praise? Why should a person praise God? Well, verses 3 through 19 essentially unpack that question. He says here in verses 3 through 5, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your mouth is renewed like the eagles. That's the, the first answer to the question is that he bestows on us immeasurable benefits. Forgiveness of sin, I mean, isn't that the most rightful and supreme gift that you and I have received in our life to be forgiven of our sins? It was unfathomable for the Pharisees to understand when Jesus said, now your sins are forgiven. Why? Because who could believe your sins were actually forgiven? Jesus says they can be. And when you think about the benefits, it is what Charles Spurgeon says, when you think about your forgiveness, it should be something of the uh, of, the, of the nature of, for every time you look at your sin, brother and sister, look twice at Christ. That's when you know you got forgiveness. You understand it. Because what Christ has accomplished for us is not just twofold, but infinitely more than whatever sin has done in our life. The sin never has the last word for those who are in faith. Sin never gets the last Call, last take, because Jesus has come and he's lived a life that you and I have not lived, but lives on our behalf as a substitution for us. He died on a cross that we deserve to die on, but we don't die on it because he died on it for us. And he went to the grave to, to, to pay the debt for death and death couldn't hold him and we don't have to experience death any longer. No forgiveness of sin? Yeah. Real healing, it says there, who heals all your diseases. I believe all, with all my heart this actually has physical healing in, not just spiritual healing involved in this. But I don't think, and I think we'd be very careful here, we're not talking about some kind of health, wealth kind of idea, health, wealth, prosperity kind of gospel here. Um, believers do get sick. We shouldn't look at believers who are struggling in ailments in various capacities and just look at them and say, you're sick because you don't really believe in God. That is just... Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. But here's the idea, I think, behind that point is whatever healing we do get for our bodies, it, it's a reminder that God is the author of that. 
God is the author of that great gift. He's not, he's not obligated to offer that healing. And some people for God's purposes suffer, and some God's people for his purposes are, are healed. But for whatever reason, they're there to show us and point us back to the glory of God and his goodness in our life. He rescues us from the pit. He rescues us, friends, from hell. From hell. He brings us back from the brink of utter and total destruction. Do you understand that? He, he snatches us from the jaws of imminent and total doom. That's what it means to be rescued from hell. He satisfies, it says, our deepest longings. He, he says, he who satisfies you with good so that the youth is renewed like eagles. God is our only satisfaction and shows us that in this life, when we live with continual reflection on his benefits he imparts, what that does is it renews our strength, even in this moment, even in this life. When life just seems like it's getting the upper hand, he will satisfy you. And he'll give you renewed purpose and renewed hope to keep on keeping on, even with the smallest evidences of his grace. And what this means for you and I as believers should be that we should be able to see, even if it's just the glimmer of these evidences of God's continuing grace in our life, regardless of how dark the clouds are in the forecast. Amen? And so that's our first thing, is that we should praise God because of the benefits he bestows. And we see this very clearly here in verses 3 through 5, but then we're going to look at 6 through 19 to answer really the next question, which is kind of under, it's like under that first question, which is what is, what is God like that we should praise him? I think that's the main question. Can you praise this God? And is he worthy of your praise? And the answer the psalmist comes to is clearly yes. His character, so intimately involved in, in working for you and me. He works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He's made known his ways to Moses and acts to his people of Israel. He is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He will not chide and keep his anger forever. He deals with us not according to our sins and according to our iniquities. He's high above the heavens and his steadfast Lord uh, love towards us for those who, are, are, who, who fear him. And as the east is from the west, he, so far as he removes the stain, the stigma of sin from us. So let's just kind of take that apart for a moment. Like the larger context of this particular section is Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. And maybe you're familiar with it. It is God speaking to Moses. In fact, if you want to join me there, you, you can. I just want to read it briefly so you can kind of set it into your minds. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. It would be great to hear this because this, in some ways, is repeated all throughout the Old Testament. Some form of this verse is repeated all through that. It's almost like it's the call. It's the, it's the, um, it's the, it's the uh, uh, confession. It's the creed of the Old Testament. Look at verses 5 through 7. I'll get there. The Lord descended in the clouds, and he stood with and he stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the children of the children to the third and fourth generation. 
So the context here is the fact that God, Moses is asked to see the face of God. And, and, and God says, you can't handle it. He says, but I will be merciful to you, and I will let you. I'll hide you in a cleft of the rock, and then you'll be able to see me pass by, and you'll be able to see my backside. And just by seeing this, this, this brief view of who God is, this is the exclamation of Moses. Bless the Lord, and he blesses generations after generations, and his mercy and his love is steadfast. And so that's what we see here in this section of why should you worship God? Because he's worth worshiping. It's a simple answer. You may not like it, but it is a simple answer. Why? He's justice for the oppressed. He's never indifferent to those in need. And let me say this. Like, neither should the church be. I know there's all the you know, cultural debates about what justice is and everything today, but the, but the Bible says a lot about justice. And, and so long as it's defined biblically, we should be people seeking these things, it's, again, within the boundaries of Scripture. And because we know that there are many people out there who define justice differently than the church does, and we understand what a true justice issue is versus probably a lot of the nonsense that's in our world today. But when we see things in our world, let's just examples, when there's racism, we should be considered, we should be, be aware of that. And we should want to speak to that because of being, because God values every image bearer. And we should take basic human dignity and we should treat everyone with basic human dignity. Even if the people that uh, we're treating fairly and, 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 and lovingly are people who have diametrically different positions on life and what the Christian life calls, or would even be a, deeply offended by the notions that we hold to as Christians. So if our engagement with the world gives us permission to mistreat or denigrate image bearers for any reason or treat them like they're less than human, even if their actions sometimes show that, we should take pause and say, that's not the way the Lord called us to. As reflections, as image bearers of God, we should, we should want to be God's ambassadors to the world to reflect his justice to the world. Amen? And I want to make sure we see that here. So he's justice for the oppressed. He's merciful and gracious, the text says. He, he relates to sinners. Oh, praise God for this, right? Through what? Mercy and grace. When they approach him in their need, like he doesn't scowl at you. See, some of us think that, like, we have this idea that, and maybe it's because we have really bad father figures or whatever it may be, we think that, like, God is sitting up in heaven constantly looking at us when every time we fail or mess up that he kind of looks behind the blood veil and says, but I really know who you are. No, he doesn't. I had a brother who was in a Bible study with me for many years back at Providence, and he just had this really, really more a jagged view of who God was and how much God's forgiveness really was. And, he, and it's because of some things that he was taught as a child that God is out there. Who's always, God's always out there trying to get him. Grew up in the church. No. He doesn't scowl at you. Brother and sister, if you are resting in his grace. No, he's slow to anger. Yeah, we might feel, and we do at times feel the heat of God's displeasure. And we do know that when we are sinning, and, and we know it when we feel that weight in our sin, and, 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 and God will hold his, sometimes God will allow us to feel that displeasure for a, for a time, but he's kind in it. He's slow in it. He's gentle in it so that we might be moved back toward grace. Does does God not deal with us, it says, for what we deserve? And the answer is no. 
Because what we deserve is wrath. We deserve condemnation for our sin and our rejection and rebellion against God. That's what the Bible repeatedly... And, and, and listen, if you don't believe the Bible, that okay, that's fine. But doesn't human history bear this out? Christian, we shouldn't relate to God as if he's just out there always trying to get us. He doesn't. No, his love for us is eternal, the text says, as God is, is himself. Think about that. That God's love for you, that's what it says here in this text, right? It says, it says very clearly here, for, his, for, as the high, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Like, he loves us with the same intensity and as much intensity about his glory as he can, as he's able, because that's part of his being. Like, his love for us is an, an, an infinite. And he removes the stain of sin from us that equals the expanse of his glory. From the far as the east is from the west, he removes the scourge of sin from us beyond our comprehension. Roy Clement wrote it this way, when he looks at our sin, he no longer looks at us, and when he looks at us, he no longer looks at sin, our sin. Praise be to God. Again, this idea that we see built out of Exodus 34 is repeated over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament by the prophets and through the Psalms, and it stands as a kind of recreedal statement to the church. But it's not there. I mean, we're not even done yet. He acts as a father towards us. Verses 14 and 16, he shows compassion to his children. He shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers our, like we're dust and they were like grass and they were going to wither away. I mean, we have a father who is compassionate towards us. Like Jesus taught us that. He gave us that image of knowing that we to relate to God as our father. And again, another way the Pharisees struggled to understand this. But here's how this works, friends. Let's just kind of do some comparison for a few moments. A good father doesn't hold his children's failures over their heads. He's gentle and compassionate towards them. He may discipline them, but he's always gentle as he does so. And if he doesn't, he tries to repent, of course. But God is always that way towards us as his other father. And he never fails to show us compassion, even in his discipline. He, is, he knows us intimately. He knows our frame, it says. A good father knows his children, right? We know this. And, and, and honestly, a good father and a good mother would know their children probably better than their own kids at times. Oh, I, listen, I know every teenager in here thinks their parents don't know them. Okay? You'll get over that one day. But the kids, your moms and your dads, if they're good moms and dads, they know you better than you know. And that's not a power play. It's just an invitation for parents to be a part of this. And so fathers, I want to encourage us this morning to just remember that as we aspire, we should aspire more and more that, that if our children suffer from a lack of, you know, of a father who, is, who doesn't seem to care about them, just maybe it's an opportunity for us to rethink what God has called us and the gift we've been given in that. Why? Because God, he knows you. He knows every fiber of your being, every hair on your head. He knows you. He knows you. And he understands your frailty. He understands you are dust. A good father knows the weaknesses of his children. 
And he's not surprised by them. I have failed at this sometimes. To respond to my children's failures at times and respond with such lack of patience and crush my children for every disappointment that they bring sometimes. So I, I'm sure that I'm not alone in that. In fact, I know we've had conversations with family dads in this church. But again, a good father is always willing to show wayward children where they may correct course and he will be patient to guide them along in the process. And the same is true of our God, infinitely more true of our God. See, God's promises are kept for us. That's the last thing about why God should be praised. Because a steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting, is righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, who remember his commandments, who establish his throne in the heavens. See, God's steadfast love extends past this generation and it will extend into the next generation and into the next generation because God loves you and he loves your children and he wants your children to know Jesus and, and, and here's the good news moms and dads sometimes we fail to give that as clearly as we should but God knows he knows your frame too he knows your weaknesses too and his promise to you goes beyond you praise be to God Praise be to God. Now, not all of our children will come to know Jesus, and we're not on the hook for that. But we can trust in Jesus, and he will be faithful to us. And so this arrives at our last question then. Because of all we've seen here, right? Because of all that God is, because of all the benefits we've received in him, who then is called to praise him? Because remember that the first one was more David preaching himself, oh, bless this, my soul, and let me not forget your benefits, God, with all my being. And then he kind of changes direction here in the last three verses. Bless the Lord, O his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all of his hosts, all of his ministers who do his will, his ministers who do his will, I'm sorry. And then bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's saying, this. It's, worship is too much for me to contain. I'm inviting everyone to worship with me. This is a command to notice the progression of who is called to worship. Angels? Yes. Those who have redeemed and lived by his word? Those who are faithfully ministering in the world? All of creation? Everywhere that God has dominion called to worship God? And this means everyone. So yes, the whole world today is invited to worship God. That's why the importance of corporate worship is what it is. When we worship, can I just tell you this? When we worship, that is the highest form of evangelism that you and I can have. Because it says that this is the greatest affection that we could ever have. Amen? So corporate worship, corporate worship is rightly, yes, for the evocation of the believer. Amen? And we, we direct it towards those, and we give it grace-dripping worship here at Grace Church. But it's also an invitation to the world who's willing to join us and say, will you do it too? You're invited to do it too. You're invited to worship this great God too. And maybe that's where you are this morning. I don't know why. I don't, there's people in here I might not know this morning. And God says to you, will you worship? You're invited to worship too. And that invitation stands to worship. You can do a lot of things out there this week as you leave here. And I pray that you do. 
But I pray that it's driven by one supreme ambition. To worship God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless his holy name indeed. Amen. Father, this morning as we finish and we prepare ourselves to the table, Jesus, would you be glorified in our time together? And would you just help us now as we step to this time and, and, and take very deep 